It is definitely a challenging time for everyone. And for providers, it's been very challenging to experience, for instance, patient loss, even having some of my own patients die, not of breast cancer, but of COVID. Yeah, it's just been a very hard year and a half for all of us. I would say that for me personally, I get to work with some really talented researchers in the lab who allow me to say, how can we make things better and allow us to put our feet in the ground and say, this is what we're going to try and we're going to test this and we're going to try these new ideas and these new technologies. And so I always feel like we're doing something and that gives me a lot of hope to combat the discouragements that we all see as oncologists. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face MBC alone. This is the seventh stop on the Road to a Cure series, and my colleague, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, and I have the very easy job of again walking across beautiful Central Park in New York City to meet with Dr. Sarat Chandler-Potty of Memorial Sloan Kettering. But this was not my first meeting with Dr. Chandler-Potty. I first met him at this very fun fundraising concert for metastatic breast cancer run by The Cancer Couch. He was able to quiet a very raucous crowd with some well-delivered jokes before clearly explaining why they were there in the first place to help fund labs like his and why his research was already making a difference in the lives of people like me living with MBC. As you'll hear, Dr. Chandler-Potty is an excellent communicator along with being a caring clinician and a brilliant researcher. The second time I saw Sarah was at the funeral of our dear friend, Rebecca Timlin Scalera. At that time, I was two years into my life with NBC, and just seeing Sarah at the funeral reminded me yet again that oncologists and researchers are human too, and that all of this tragic loss from NBC impacts everyone. Dr. Chandralapati, MD, PhD, is an associate professor of medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with appointments as the laboratory head in the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program, an associate member on the Breast Cancer Medicine Service. The goal of Dr. Chandler-Potty's research is to investigate the mechanisms and consequences of activation of growth factor and hormonal signaling pathways in breast cancer, and to translate those findings towards the development of more effective and durable treatments for metastatic disease. A major focus of his lab has been to characterize the the significance of alterations present in breast tumors that have progressed on targeted therapy. He has helped to elucidate both immediate and delayed adaptations in breast cancer that promote treatment resistance and so much more. His work is supported by nonprofit foundations like the Cancer Couch Foundation and BCRF, along with the NIH and other funders. Here's my co-host, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, starting us off. Dr. Chandra Lapati, can you tell us about your journey to become a breast cancer scientist and clinician? 
Yeah, thanks. I'd say that it was rooted in tragedy. I was in junior high. I was realizing that my backhand just wasn't good enough to make the varsity tennis team. And so I had to get a new interest. <laughs> and so around that time, I started up in high school debate around ninth grade, 10th grade. And that that really opened up a lot for me as a person just to see different points of view and different sides of a of anything, of an argument, of a idea, to look at it from different perspectives, different angles. And that that was fascinating for me and developed my interest in research, actually. And so then when I went to college and then I went to pursue research as a PhD in biochemistry. And while I was doing that, I loved it. We were studying a pathway called the MAP kinase pathway in baker's yeast. And while we were studying that pathway, and at the same time, there were mutations in the genes for that pathway being discovered in human cancer. So this gene called RAS was being found to be mutated in all sorts of cancers. And it's the same protein or same gene homolog in yeast that it is in mammalian cells. And so it was unbelievable to me that the same pathway we were studying had some relevance to human cancer. And I thought, wow, if we could somehow harness what we're learning and help that to influence how we treat disease, that would be amazing. So I wanted that for my career. And so then I, I shifted gears a little after I graduated and went to medical school and, and then did residency and realized that the place where this was most ripe for bringing research into human disease and biology and really interfacing science with people was in oncology and decided to pursue oncology, but really always with that mind of going back to the lab. And so that's what I did once I finished the first year of fellowship. And the thing that we were studying in the lab was HER2, which was an oncogene that was discovered decades earlier, was found to be overexpressed in breast cancer, later found to be in other cancers too. But where we were actually putting the drugs in the clinic was in breast cancer patients. So it, of course, made the most sense for me at that time to focus my clinical practice on breast cancer. And so in every way, the science kind of led to the disease in the patients. And, and that's really where a lot of what my interest started. I will say then that what happened then was as I got to know patients and I saw patients do well and some patients have their disease progress. That influenced the kinds of questions I was asking in the lab. So then there was the translation back from the clinic to the lab. And that's always been how it's gone since then. I've, ideas come from the lab, they go to the clinic. Ideas come from the clinic, they go to the lab. That translational aspect is so critical. And being both PhD scientists, staying in the lab, and a clinician, that's really such an advantage. The ideas flow so much more easily. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research? What we've really been interested in is understanding something, a problem that I, I see in the clinic, and that is, why is it that my patient who was treated with hormone therapy for two years and has been doing great, suddenly the cancer starts growing somewhere? Like, why is that? It, it was behaving really well under the therapy, not just like for a few weeks, but for years, and then it changed. How did that change happen? And then how could we change that? Very simple, but really it was the observation, not that something didn't work at all. Okay, we have plenty of examples of that, uh, but actually it's something that worked and then stopped working. So that process means something changed. Did the patient stop taking the drug? Occasionally that happens, but that's really not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is the cancer 
itself changed. And so what we wanted to do was really compare cancers, take the cancer that grew and compare it to the one that initially uh, was exposed to the drug. And through those comparisons, we do see evidence for an evolving cancer. Probably isn't a surprise if we really thought about the fact that the cancer evolved to get to that place in the first place. But it is something that we think now is not that this evolution is random, but there are actually specific patterns that the cancers evolve through under the pressure of therapy. And by understanding those patterns, I think that we can develop treatments that either deal with the resistant cancer or prevent the evolution from happening in the first place. And so those are the really two of the major approaches we're trying to take. We're, we're taking that a lot of that with the hormone cell cycle inhibitor approach that we standardly give to estrogen receptor positive breast cancer patients. We also study that for the other cancer types too, for HER2 and even for triple negative, some of them, we have therapies that work. So we're trying to understand when a therapy works, how do those cancers evolve to develop resistance? And again, can we target the resistant cancer in a unique way? Can we block evolution in some way? And then the third approach is, can we take that response that we initially got? So let's say a cancer shrunk by 50%. That means 50% was still there. How can we turn that 50 into 80, 90, 100%? So that gives no room for a cancer to evolve. So this is where I think about deepening the response. Yes, we have a hook in, we got something that worked. Let's just make it work completely. So why doesn't it work completely? And that's a third area that we're really interested in the lab. Sometimes we've seen people where their tumors start out HER2 positive, hormone receptor negative, and then they progress and now they've developed hormone receptor positivity on some of the cells, or conversely, the HER2 disappears. Is there work going on to do some kind of combined treatment? How do you deal with those clones that really have changed? Yeah. So that's a great question. We definitely see that sometimes, not all the time, cancer starts out as hormone negative or HER2 negative, and then three years later, it comes out that one of those is positive. And there are two possibilities. One is that that cancer cell that was hormone negative changed and became hormone positive. Or that before we ever started treatment, there were 50 hormone positive cells and one HER2 positive cell. Mm -hmm. And we killed all those hormone positive, but the HER2 positive doesn't care about that hormone therapy and it grew out. So either we're dealing with a problem of heterogeneity at the beginning, or we're dealing with a problem of what we say is genomic instability of an evolving cancer that can just change and adapt. And I think the solutions to those two different possibilities are different than each other. I think in one case, we need tests that actually define the heterogeneity that exists at the beginning. And then that will tell me, oh, I can't just give therapy for the three cells. I've got to give one for the other five. And then the other approach, though, is to say there's some measure of evolvability of this cancer. There's some way in which I see a feature that tells me this cancer, once I treat it, is going to evolve and has that potential to evolve. And maybe I can target that evolutionary process. Maybe I can target that genomic instability. What's an example of that? We know about BRCA and how that makes the genome unable to properly repair normal mutations that occur. What if some of those normal mutations that occur are ones that cause drug resistance? 
and the mutation ability is due to that process. If we could kill off those cells, again, through a PARP inhibitor, perhaps we prevent them from then developing resistance. That's an idea that we're trying to work on. But that's a, just one example. I think there are several of, of the underlying process that leads to a unstable, evolvable cancer. Can we in some way target that? And that's, I think, where we're really interested. We, we don't necessarily have all the answers there, but that is what our research is really going after. Because we've struggled a bit with this idea that you could just wait for resistance and then target it after it's become resistant. Why? Because while that works, you you may have five different forms of resistance by the time it develops. And so the right. if we could somehow avoid playing that sort of whack-a-mole approach and yeah. instead try to undercut the very process that allowed that to occur, I'm hopeful that will yield more durable responses. Is your lab working on a testing mechanism to help with that precise heterogeneity that you were talking about? Yeah, we, among many groups that are looking at two different, at least, sort of ways of trying to look at this question of heterogeneity. Again, we've always known that cancer cells are heterogeneous, but we need to know that they're heterogeneous in important ways. A large versus small cell may not tell me very much, but the size differences they just tell me there's heterogeneity, but a mutation in one gene that causes growth versus a mutation in another gene that causes growth, that's something that we can intervene upon. So what are the approaches? One is to do liquid biopsies that capture the DNA, as well as even more sophisticated tumor biopsies, where we do more sequencing than we had traditionally, so whole genome sequencing instead of targeted small panel sequencing. Now, what does that mean, though? We're just getting a lot more information from a lot more cells to help us construct, in a sense, what is the real full picture of this cancer rather than just what is the major dominant clone, if you will. The second way that we're trying to do that is to go back to pictures and specifically trying to use image analysis. So what sort of images do we have? We, we have images, for instance, of microscopic slides where we can see different cells. Can we even more carefully characterize those different cells? So can we extract information from individual cells? There's single cell sequencing, there's individual cell assays on slides. There, there, are, all, there are a lot of new technologies to help pull out information that you can visually see on a, on a slide. There are also ways people are doing that with very information-rich images from radiographics. So MRIs or CTs, these contain a lot more information than we're actually able to process with our own minds. And so can we extract all that information and understand heterogeneity from that perspective? So those are ways in which I'd say the research field is trying to do that. We are certainly trying to do that in a way that helps us understand resistance and to actually specify what is it that's causing resistance so that we can, I think, say more than it's just heterogeneous, say more than this one looks more nasty than this one, but actually just say, okay, this one needs these two drugs and this one needs just this drug. So we're really interested in that kind of precision therapy. Sure. As people are living longer, we're running up against barriers of drug resistance. We're also having more brain metastases and leptomeningitis disease. What would you say are the emerging areas of, of research that are addressing these issues? Especially with better treatments, we're starting to find that what happens is it works everywhere, but it didn't work here. That there are these, we might call sanctuaries, for the cancer. 
and some of those are the brain leptomeninges for sure. Even the liver to some degree can feel like that. So why is that? And that's really one of the most important areas I think of research right now is to define the tumor microenvironment. A breast cancer in the breast is not necessarily the same as a breast cancer growing in the liver. Something had to permit it, this relatively foreign cell to grow there. And what is permissive for that may be deterministic in why the treatment doesn't work. Liquid biopsies analyze the free-floating tumor DNA in the blood sample of a patient with cancer. This is called circulating tumor DNA by some or cell-free DNA by others. Much of your research is focused on the genetic modification of tumors that have developed resistance to treatment. What role do you see for liquid biopsies in the care of people who've developed resistance to treatment? And can this blood test ever replace invasive tissue biopsies? Yeah, great question. And we're seeing a lot of excitement over the possibility of using a blood test to better characterize the cancer and to follow the cancer and to replace some of the invasive procedures. What can it do? What's happening is the cancer cells releasing DNA and then it's going into the bloodstream. And that's actually happening not just from one site, but let's say there's a cancer in the liver and one in the bone. Both of them are contributing to the DNA that shows up in the blood. So we actually get a more comprehensive picture, if you will, of the DNA. It can also be something that we follow over time. So if a treatment works, perhaps it lowers the amount of uh, DNA that's showing up in the blood. Perhaps we actually see that phenomenon that I, we just talked about with the liver. Perhaps we see one mutation go up and the other go down, and that's uh, a sort of early indicator of what's going to happen. But what it can't do yet is tell us about anything besides DNA. And so, for instance, we are very interested in whether the estrogen receptor protein, the HER2 protein, these are markers that tell us whether we can treat with anti-estrogens or anti-HER2 therapies. The blood test doesn't tell us about those markers. And so we gain valuable information from the tumor biopsy. And from a research point of view, increasingly we are asking questions about whether the cell composition is homogeneous or heterogeneous, whether all the cancer cells that we biopsy are the same, or they have differences, and those differences carry important information about whether we need to treat the cancer differently. It's hard for the blood test to tell us about that, and the biopsies do help us. I understand. Can you see a role for following these liquid biopsies in patients who've completed treatment of early-stage breast cancer? Would any kind of routine surveillance for late recurrences improve outcomes for those at risk, or would it just diagnose metastatic disease earlier? That's a great question. One of the premises behind why we give adjuvant therapy, again, we're not following anything. We're giving hormone therapy, and we don't even know if there's any cancer there that we're using it for. We're not following if it worked. We have no idea. What's the premise behind doing that? The premise is that there are some undetectable amounts of cancer around and that by using the treatment, we can arrest or kill those cells. That notion really comes from the idea that when there's less cancer, it's easier with these drugs, that they're somehow more susceptible to our treatments when there's less disease burden. So one would logically think, okay, if that's true, then if we could quantify when there's very little cancer versus a lot, that should give us insight into 
whether we can track the disease, follow disease, treat minimal disease in more active ways. The problem is, do we have a sensitive enough test that can really tell us at that threshold that's so low that we are actually going to make a difference? Historically, we tried to do that. We tried to look at the question using protein markers, tumor markers, and it turned out that wasn't a very effective means for detecting minimal, at least that threshold of minimal disease. And so the promise is maybe these new tests are just much, much more sensitive. But we need to do research to figure that out. We, we can't just blindly assume that the test, because it's a new technology, is going to help us versus just give us a, a little bit of an early, earlier treatment, but not necessarily change the ultimate outcome. So we have to do difficult clinical trials to see, are we making a difference by introducing the therapy earlier? Why is it difficult to do a clinical trial around that? I'm sure it's an obvious answer. I just don't know. Great question. There are a couple of reasons. One is, and principally is, you have to test a lot of patients to find it. And so you're testing a lot for the, the few that are going to get it. And then a second question, and this is really the, one of the harder ones, Let's say we want to prove that detecting it early made a difference. That means we might have to randomize patients to get it or not get the therapy. And it's very difficult to be randomized into the not get therapy because we all assume that getting therapy is going to help. We actually don't know that. We may ultimately just give early information and anxiety and not actually improve it. We don't know. We have to do the sort of test, but it's difficult. to. I would find it difficult, and I think our patients would find it difficult. And so it's a challenging sort of design from that point of view. But the bigger issue is just you have to do a lot of tests at a lot of different times, and most of those are going to be negative. Mm. And so... Who's going to pay for that? And I think that's what's so interesting. Like The trial design is difficult because of this issue of not treating and randomizing it because you yes. want it to be the best clinical design possible. So there's the money factor, and then there's how difficult it is when you're really treating humans who want to live for as long as possible. So I understand that. How does that compare to the difficulty of the clinical trial design, say, that was conducted over the last three or four, five, six years that helped define the standard of care that individuals who are de novo metastatic, that they will not be treated with a mastectomy or surgery or lumpectomies even because that does not extend their lives. Yeah. And so there's there's a really difficult question, even four years ago, where it was not standard. The clinical trial results were not definitive yet. So there were some clinicians that were giving mastectomies and lumpectomies or bilateral mastectomies, as had been done, even in stage four patients when they were first diagnosed. And then all of a sudden, nope, that's not the way we're doing it. So that seemed like a difficult clinical trial design. Would you compare it the same or was is one more difficult than the other? I, I think they're similar. It, it does go against a bit of the ethos of the patient and the doctor in this case to want to treat. Let's say I find that there's some yeah. signal of the cancer. Well, we're going to want to treat. That's just our instinct. One of the challenges that the field really tackled and, and tried to do is de how do we de-escalate chemotherapy in, in patients? And this has been a huge success. It came by first really doing careful studies to, to say, yes, our marker reliably tells us about the patients for whom 
the risk is so low that chemotherapy can't possibly reduce it, showing that worked. And then randomizing patients who normally would have gotten chemotherapy to not get it. And the field took great care to try to walk those steps to not just immediately drop a therapy that was helping patients. No, you definitely have a very hard job. There's (laughs) no question. When you're doing clinical trials like this, and particularly withholding treatment, what is the role of a patient deciding? A trial that's set up where the patient decides which arm of the trial they want to be in. Some people don't want the treatment and some people do. And that can help with accrual sometimes, but I don't know the statistical logistics of that. Yeah, I think that we have challenges when patients, the study subjects, if you will, are making decisions about the treatment because it introduces a form of bias. And that's long been known, even that sort of patient selection, a motivated patient might be somebody who does other things besides that they chose to be on the study, and therefore it's difficult to compare that group of patients with another group of patients. And so that's ultimately why randomized studies carry such uh, value. That being said, I think we are trying our best to democratize this by using other markers. So if we can compare two groups of cancers based on their features, genetic features, other features, and say we've randomized by features, that may overcome at least part of the issue, particularly when we're targeting one of those features. That's interesting. Back to the liquid biopsy issue. Do you see this as part of clinical practice yet, or is it not really ready for prime time? And what needs to be done to change the utilization? Yeah, so it is actually in clinical practice right now. We use these markers to tell us about very specific mutations which are present inform our treatments. So we can look now today for a PI3 kinase mutation in the blood, and if we find it, that patient may be eligible for an inhibitor of PI3 kinase. This is true in other cancers, lung cancer, colon cancer, etc. So there are many cancer types now where we can use it to identify a patient who's uh, going to be treated with a certain therapy. What we're hoping, though, is to expand the use of this in the two in two ways. One, uh, we hope to expand it in that sort of minimal amount of cancer sort of state that may tell us about a patient who needs to be treated who otherwise wouldn't be. That's what we're calling MRD because that's what we do in other cancers like leukemia. And secondly, we're hoping to use it actually to follow patients a little more closely. So. Um, rather than waiting three months to see if the scan changed or not, maybe we can look in two weeks and see is the treatment working or not. And if it's not, then we don't have to waste the next two and a half months on it. There's work to be done there, but that, those are two areas we're clearly interested in using this technology more. That's great. So that seems to fit into the concept of personalized cancer care. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And and the other thing, it's great when you're at a decision point with your clinician and this provides you with a little bit more data that may be able to come back quicker than a full on traditional biopsy, which we always recommend to our listeners, get a biopsy, you get progression, next step, biopsy, right? So sometimes the biopsies take a long time to come back and then decisions are made on treatment in between that time. So this is a way for us to be a little bit nimbler. At least that's my understanding of it. And the way you describe it is exactly right. It's, I would say, a tremendous improvement in care. This is what we start thinking about in terms of how is that funded? Is it paid for by Medicare, right? Yeah. Those are, that's a really good question. And while the test is yeah. FDA approved and, and yeah. meaning you can get liquid biopsy, the degree to which that's available everywhere can vary. Although I think I would say increasingly companies are looking to enable this to be available everywhere. For sure. instance, sending kits to directly to patients or sending phlebotomists directly to patients even. And so there are efforts being made to make this more widely accessible, but somebody's got to order it. Somebody's got to interpret it. That Those are also potential barriers. Absolutely. And sometimes the clinician doesn't see it as much of a priority, given that they're drinking from the fire hose about a whole bunch of other things. So we, we get it. But maybe a, a listener will then ask the question to their oncologist, which right. is always what we try to do. So this may seem so reductive, but in terms of a question, is there one thing or two or three that you wish you could change immediately with the way that metastatic breast cancer, clinical trials, and research are conducted? So it's actually a really huge question. And given that I've been involved on the fundraising of research side, and I've been really looking at what's happening in the clinical trial landscape, just as an outside observer, I know money's one of them. Let's just take money right out of it. Wouldn't that be nice? But anyway, (laughs) I'll let you answer. I I am going to answer in a funny way with money. I think that the advances that I pointed to HER2 therapy the value of something like Oncotype. Some of these are incentivized. That is, the advances are incentivized by financial factors. There's a strong incentive to develop drugs that can be approved and that get reimbursed uh, at a rate that pays for the research and more. But some of the other technologies don't get reimbursed to that level or to that kind of incentive that's going to lead to the research. So a technology that de-escalates therapy may or may not necessarily draw the kind of reimbursement that is going to justify somebody spending the time or being able to spend the time and develop the technology so that it's used. And so some of the types of trials that we want to do, particularly I'd say in academia, are difficult to fund because they don't have that ROI financial payoff, even though they have a patient payoff. And so I guess what I'm arguing for is that there may be needs to recalibrate how uh, reimbursement occurs for the development of technologies that help patients, but don't always help bottom line. Yeah, I figured that would be the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, I think ultimately we all want to see these kinds of advances to to take place. And we know that the investments work. And I think it, it also is reflected in the number of clinical trials that we have currently in the HER2 space. And again, so grateful for that happening. But it means that 
it's almost like a win, then every pharma company is going, okay, now let's all go in that direction because strategically we're going to get a better return on investment or the chances are higher. And so our board cares about that, our investors, our stakeholders, whatever. And that's what we're seeing right now. I think in metastatic breast cancer research, there's this disproportionate glut of HER2 research and less so perhaps with the other oncotypes, as as you pointed out. So it's interesting. There's another piece too that we've been hearing a little bit about, and that is how research is truly shared globally. And there's that whole construct of paid journals and the way it's necessary for a young researcher to get recognized for a research lab like yours though I know you have no trouble getting published. But you know what I'm saying. There's others maybe that have a really good big idea and they have to get published and they have to get into these, to get into ASCO, to get into SABCS. And all of that could, there's like silos of information. And even researchers know that's true and good researchers who are successful. But the way things are done in oncology research is very different with the way things are done in other sciences, in other pure science research. And there's like this level playing field where all of this information is available almost like in a GitHub, if you know anything about computer science and how that's done, that is like available for everyone. It's, again, I understand there are really great journals and entities that create these forums for information for research to be evaluated. But we have to move fast. And to move fast, wouldn't it be better if we had this level playing field where everyone could just see all around the world? Now, I know that the Aurora Project does a little bit of that, I think. So there's movement. But what are your thoughts about that? I will echo the notion that data sharing can be unbelievably powerful and uh, transformative, really. I I will give the the example of my own institution. Here at Sloan Kettering, when the institution really invested in developing a genomic technology that was going to be applied to our patients and set up the Center for Molecular Oncology, and we now have this test, MSK Impact, that, you know, is available for many different cancer types. The data, the information on all that was immediately available to all the people at MSKCC. So if you were a breast cancer researcher, you could look at the lung cancer data, you could look at the colon cancer data. And it was amazing to be able to study in a more broad and agnostic way. So I was studying estrogen receptor mutations. And very quickly, I found out what? We don't just have breast cancer estrogen receptor mutations. There's one other cancer that has these, endometrial cancer. And it's actually important there too. And and that kind of information sharing led, I think, to so many different projects at our center and really accelerated research. So I would just say that I agree that having that kind of access to data really is empowering and does accelerate work. And for sure, many different bodies are really trying to help oncologists, oncology research to adopt that. BCRF, but also TCGA and journals are trying to really enforce that everyone, when they publish, makes all their data available. All all sorts of different uh, stakeholders are are really pushing this point so that I do think it's improving compared to 10 years ago. 
Thanks, thanks for that. So metastatic breast cancer, it's generally thought of as an incurable disease, but one to 2% of MBC patients survive without evidence of disease for years. And although these instances are few in number, they suggest the possibility of a cure. So what do you think? How do you define a cure, Sarat? Yeah, so I want to dwell on that number for a minute. I actually think it's higher than 1% to 2%. Maybe it was 1% to 2% before. Now it's a little higher. That change is important. Why do I think that number is higher? And what does that mean? So for a small group of patients, it could be partly related to the fact that even though it's disseminated, it's a non-lethal entity. Maybe it's only in the skin. Maybe it's only in some lymph nodes that will never go on to be lethal. That says biology is an important factor in lethality. It's not just inevitability. And if we could understand those differences, why is it that one cancer would just stay in the skin, but another one kept going other places? If we could understand those differences, maybe we could drug those differences and turn them all into a non-lethal entity. Number two, what changed? The biology probably didn't change, but the treatments changed. When I started clinical practice. We just um, had come out with the first anti-HER2 therapy, and now we have multiple anti-HER2 therapies. And it's reasonable to think that a larger subset for the HER2 breast cancer is being cured in the metastatic setting. Now, HER2 breast cancer didn't change. Our treatments changed. That tells us something important. It says that we can think about cure because if we could just figure out what is that linchpin or linchpins, maybe we can effectively do the same thing that we've done for that group of HER2-positive breast cancers. The third thing to say, though, is we do have to stare at those numbers. If I'm saying it's 5%, if I'm saying it's 10%, it's still only 5 to 10%. And so we have a long way to go. And we want to think more along the lines that we do in early stage disease where we are thinking more in the 80 to 90% and we expect to cure our patients. I appreciate that nuance and I'm wondering if you know of numbers that everyone seems to agree upon that are determined by subtype. So you mentioned the HER2, uh, which we're all really thrilled about, but that probably is punching up 5 to 10%. And maybe with the hormone-positive folks, it's still stuck in 1% to 2%. But that's just conjecture. Do you know what the different subtypes numbers are at right now? And again, we still need to solve the problem because it's only 5 10% at the best-case scenario. So I'd just be curious what you think. Yeah, I think that we're seeing, in when we look at our clinical trial data, for instance, the patients who um, are not having cancer come back after five years on the same regimen, those numbers are going up in each group. They are much higher in the HER2 group, in the 10 to 20% range even. Yeah. In the, you know, 10% range in the ER positive group and in the, yeah, more like 5% range in the triple negative group. So th that's not cure, but that's just saying that as we look at data, we're hitting those benchmarks in higher numbers of patients. It is difficult actually to give those numbers because we don't, we don't necessarily track 
everything. The tracking is challenging and it's progression free survival you're talking about really. And that will translate to overall and whether someone, you know, ultimately died of something else. But I think those numbers are what ultimately leads us, us to say someone is cured. I think that there are, are going to be cures, to be very clear, not a cure, because I think these are fundamentally different diseases. One question I would ask is, how do we define cure? What does that actually mean? If somebody has high blood pressure, we don't cure their high blood pressure, but we treat it for the rest of their lives such that they don't have consequences from it. But we don't really think in those terms with cancer. We think much more in the surgical sort of term. We've removed it and it didn't come back as an event. And that distinction may or may not be appropriate. I'm not saying it's not a, a goal of ours to treat and be done, but I am saying that if someone was treated and lived with a uh, treatment and that it may be acceptable to uh, a number of our patients. Yeah, let me follow up with, we believe that a cure will come from cooperation among um, people in the community of patients, government funders, pharmaceutical and biotech companies, academic centers, community oncologists, everybody pitching in. And we've seen such rapid scientific advances with coronavirus and studies for COVID. Why do you think we're having more trouble getting this kind of or of open access sharing and financial support for cancer? Or maybe what you're describing is that it's getting better. That's a good question. I do think there has been major progress in terms of the kind of data sharing. I think that the dialogue you're speaking of is really important and maybe more complex than what we're dealing with um, COVID and the pandemic, although maybe. I, I do think that there's a lot to be said for needing everyone to, to converse. So recognizing from the patient point of view what actually is an acceptable toxicity versus a not acceptable toxicity that I would experience for three months versus 10 years. It, that's real information that um, we need to understand rather than just say, well, it's safe and non-toxic. Well, what did I actually mean by that? And so I think similarly, the, I think government and, and policymakers need to hear from advocates and from researchers about uh, what kinds of questions really need funding? What are the most important things that are going to change public health? So I agree in the sense that there are a lot of different dialogues that need to happen for a complex set of problems like breast cancer. Let's take a little bit of time to hear about your lab and how funding of your lab, and we can say through the Cancer Couch Foundation, and I know that you're also funded by BCRF and I love them and I help them too, but the Cancer Couch actually has this 100% match. So a dollar for the Cancer Couch is two bucks for you. So tell me what those two bucks do. Those two bucks allow us to really innovate and to try really new ideas. What I would say is N of one patients, just like the founder, Rebecca, Timlin. What we can't really go to major funding bodies and ask for is the kind of funding needed to jumpstart a really 
brand new idea. Now, someone say, why do you want to pursue? You should pursue things that are based on science. And they are based on science. But for these sort of N of one patients, I see one thing in one patient. And maybe that will be true for a lot of patients. But I need to study that one. And we need to study that example. I don't have any data for that. And so having this kind of funding of our lab, of us as innovators, as people who are studying our patients in the lab, I think that's been you know, transformative of the kind of work that we do and has led to some really major discoveries that we've now gone on to the NIH, to BCRF, to large organizations, the extension of this work so that it you know, can make a drug, so that it can be looked at in large populations and so forth. That's what it's really allowed us to do is make, I think, brand new discoveries based specifically on some of our you know, patients. It's a time game because research takes time. So when we can take some of those barriers away, that can help accelerate research just even at that simple level. Yeah. And I, I do think there is an element of, for an organization like Cancer Council, we are funded by Cancer Council. And so I put that on in, in every talk. I put that at the end of my slides. And we know that this is part of our mission. And there's an element of, of we're funded by these small donors. We know that. And that's part of our mission to hear those stakeholders and what kind of research they want us to be uh, pushing. Understood. I also wanted to comment on your focus on the N of one, because for many of us, I shouldn't say many of us, I'm thinking of one of my friends in particular, she always considered herself an N of one as she was living with NBC. And I think back to my own field where with alpha theta protein, when we first started doing blood tests for alpha theta protein, it was looking for open neural tube defects, that if it was high, that indicated there was a problem with the developing fetus. There was one woman who had a very low number and she kept asking, what does this mean? And her doctor said, it means nothing. And when the baby was born, the um, infant had multiple congenital anomalies and had a, actually, I believe um, it was a trisomy 18 baby. At any rate, that patient and that doctor, that N of one, actually she went to a different physician, that N of one went on and they studied this and it developed this whole enormous field of genetic diagnosis for um, prenatal diagnosis on blood tests. And she started it and it was her idea and it was her, her persistence. And it was the willingness of a doctor to spend their time exploring a new idea. And that's where the great advances come. So I, I just think that, that was that's tremendous and I really appreciate that. Yeah, and it, it's just such a source of really, once you see a major effect, even if it's in that one patient, I think it gives you the, the insight to be able to really study a process that almost inevitably, and it may look slightly different, but it really reproduces itself in, in many more patients. And, and that's one of the advantages, I think, being able to both see patients and then do the research in the lab. Exactly, exactly. Thank you so much for your time, Sarat. We really appreciate it. All right. So enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you yeah, for thank your you time. Thank you so much. Really Thanks, this was really it. fun. Really All appreciate right. it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. 
This podcast is produced and edited by me, Lisa Laudico, and Dr. Ellen Landsberger, with support from the entire Road to a Cure team, senior producer Victoria Goldberg, and Cure team members Dr. Paula Jane and Kate Fitzer. Expert sound design and original music from Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our News Blast, rate and review us, look for a new episode, and check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.